This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55-yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network. Stand by, 15 seconds to air. Stand by, old camera, and videotape. Ready with your opening graphics. Stand by, Howard. Here we come, Frank. Ready, Don. Stand by, audio, your opening music, and roll tape. Take tape. Celebrating 150 years of college football. Race, media, and money are what transform sports in American society. When you get on a football field, there is no black and white. That's what I love about football. At any time that you can use your platform for good, you use that platform because not everybody's given that. If you can't fly in that field, run. If you can't run, walk. If you can't walk, fall. But by all means, keep moving. The thing about civil rights, it doesn't ever end. It just moves around and changes. The integration of college football was kind of a microcosm of the civil rights movement. Integration has probably been the most significant aspect of the growth of college football. This is going to be happening throughout the rest of this century. Racism was prevalent during my time. It was prevalent two months ago. It's prevalent today. College football as we know it today was this evolution ridding ourselves of segregation. The team leader, the field general, the quarterback is most often white. They just wanted to play football, but they understood they had a role in something bigger. These people, they all fought. My players need my support, and I'm going to support them. If you can play, you can play. Outstanding individuals help pave the way for other young people of African-American heritage to become involved in college athletics. I know that I sit here on the shoulders of a heck of a lot of people who have done so many things to have to endure and to open doors for the rest of us. There's a lot of people who have done tremendous things, and some we know about it, and a lot we don't. The introduction of black people, young black athletes, has been the major event of American society. I couldn't have been able to be a part of this great game of football if it wasn't for some of the people that came before me. You can't have a conversation, not an honest conversation, about college football 
without talking about the massive contribution of black athletes from the very beginning. The racial landscape of college football in its earliest years was not all that far off from what was going on in the rest of the country. Jim Crow was settling in. There were not a lot of African-Americans who were students at institutions of higher learning. There were some, and they did play football. William Henry Lewis ended up eventually not only playing, but then coaching at Harvard. He's the guy that came up with the neutral zone. Young Mr. Lewis at Harvard, turn of the century. Two-time All-American playing center there. That starts it off, you know, Fritz Pollard. The era when Fritz Pollard was playing, quarterbacks still called the plays. They called the signals at the line. He was the field general. That's the term they use all, all the time. And so to have an African-American in that position was really quite extraordinary. If you're a black athlete and you're given a chance to play college football at a time when the sport is not really integrated, you're one of a small number. And so whatever you do is gonna resonate in ways that it's not going to resonate for people who represent the majority population. The fact that Gideon Smith started at Michigan State in 1913, or Michigan Agricultural College at the time, may be most significant because as the first player at Michigan State, he's in a way the pioneer for the really astonishingly, exceptionally integrated Michigan State teams of the 50s and 60s. The character that it takes for them to do what they have done, and it goes all through society. We're talking college football, but we also know those pioneers, no matter what place society, they were always the lonely people too. From a pistol shot at Sarajevo, the first of the great modern world wars exploded. And almost overnight, all of Europe was engulfed in conflict. Race relations after World War I were pretty tenuous. You know, African-Americans had served honorably in Europe, but then they came home to be treated not only as they had been, but probably worse. For the few African-Americans that ended up on the college football field, very few people were gonna cut them any slack. Iowa State, Jack Trice is a great example. So Iowa State is getting ready to play at Minnesota. They get to the hotel. He has to stay on an entirely different floor than the rest of his team. The night before the football game, he decides to write a letter to himself. My thoughts before I play my first real football game. In it, he writes, the honor of my race, my family, and myself is at stake. I'm expected to do big things. I will. The next day, they get into the game. The Minnesota players attacked him on the field, and the injuries they gave him ended up taking his life. In a football game, a football game. I mean, it, it's, it's appalling. You would like to think there would have been a scandal, but there wasn't. 28 years after Jack Trice lost his life, there were still many instances of black players being targeted on the field. Johnny Bright is a back at Drake. He's leading the country in total offense. Drake is playing Oklahoma A&M, now Oklahoma State. Early in the game, the Oklahoma A&M defensive players attack Johnny Bright. Bright was knocked out of the game by a fierce blow to the face. The black and white pictures captured by the Des Moines Register showed it was more than just a football injury. 
It was a white-on-black attack. There was really no doubt when you saw those images that Johnny Bright was brutally assaulted on the field, was targeted. And so it became a national story in which people wanted to know why. As far as the Des Moines Register and their photos, they submitted them for spot news photography and win the Pulitzer Prize. Weeks after the photos appear in the Des Moines Register, they sell them to Life magazine. You can't imagine how big Life magazine was in the middle of the 20th century. It sort of was the first time, the first racial incident that really grabbed college football by the throat and said, you can't ignore this any longer. To separate young people from others of similar age and qualifications solely because of their race, generates a feeling of inferiority as to their status in the community that may affect their hearts and minds in a way unlikely ever to be undone. We conclude that in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. For those of us who grew up during that time, segregation was legal. I've gone to the colored water fountain and drank colored water. So I know what that feels like. I know how degrading that is. During the past several years, many communities in our southern states have instituted public school plans for gradual progress in the enrollment and attendance of school children of all races in order to bring themselves into compliance with the law of the land. After the Brown versus the Board of Education decision of 1954, blacks were now in the classrooms, but that didn't mean that they were going to be allowed to play football. For the vast majority of black players in the South, historically black colleges and universities were still the best option for them to go on and get an education and play college football. I had a group of boys who wanted to win, who wanted to excel. They were willing to pay the price, hard work. You could go to Florida a and see Jay Gaither, Agile, mobile, hostile, that's his football player. You can go to Jackson State with W.C. Gordon, Morgan State with Earl Banks. These people, they didn't just make football players. They created men. Eddie Robinson is like the godfather of the whole thing. Football has given uh, uh, opportunity to many young Negro boys. Uh, they'll have uh, two chances football and, and, and the vocation for which you train. Being 21 or 22 years old, a football coach at Grammar, he was given the order to build a program. And he literally built that program from the ground up. He would line the field, practice the band. You know, he would kind of do everything. And it was a lesson in sort of the HBCU experience. In order to be a, a very good defensive man, the first time that ball is snapped, you got to knock hell out of him and let him know one thing. That boy, you going to be in trouble this evening. you got a good man in front of you. His team's won 17 Southwestern Athletic Conference titles and nine National Black College Championships. Last night, Robinson won his 400th victory. He has sent almost 200 players to the pros, and great ones indeed. Everything that he did was 100% geared to make you a better person. Winning the ball game is not the thing. I want to win the guy. 
all the people we talked about before, Trice and Eddie Robinson, there was a sense of mission there. We were trying to get somewhere. On December 1st, 1955, in the city of Montgomery, Rosa Parks is arrested for refusing to move to the back of the bus. On December 2nd, 1955, Governor Marvin Griffin of Georgia, seeing that Georgia Tech had been invited to play Pittsburgh in the Sugar Bowl, puts out a statement saying the South stands at Armageddon. He was not going to let Georgia Tech, a state university, go to play Pittsburgh in New Orleans because Pittsburgh had an African-American player, Bobby Greer. I call upon all Georgians who wish to see the Georgia way of life continue to rally with me and to help me beat back the insidious propaganda and the relentless efforts of our enemies to destroy us. You know, it's not a very long walk from the Georgia Tech campus to the state capitol. And the Georgia Tech students marched on the state capitol in protest of Governor Griffin's statement. Georgia Tech fans and the Georgia Tech football program and the university all wanted to play in that football game. And Georgia Tech went down to play Pittsburgh. But that's just where the story begins. Time to start the 22nd Sugar Bowl football classic. Early in the game, Georgia Tech is driving. Wide receiver named Don Ellis, he's going to be covered by Bobby Greer. First down, 10 yards to go. Mitchell fakes to Rosenberry. He fades deep. He's rushed. Rushed by Walton and finally throws. Greer pursues Ellis into the end zone. Ellis leaps for the ball, but it's out of his reach. However, there's a flag on the play, and interference is called. Tech gets the ball on the one-yard line. The next thing I know, I got pushed to the back, and I'm on the ground and looking up, and the ball's going over his head. Now it was called for pass interference. The whole Pittsburgh sideline, everybody, they're apoplectic. How can that be? He's the one that got pushed. He's the one on the ground. First and goal for Tech. The Georgia Tech quarterback keeps the ball, and he sneaks through the middle for a touchdown. And Tech wins 7 to nothing. The refs weren't always going to call penalties in your favor the way they might for your opponent who happened to be white or your teammate who happened to be white. So it's important not to get caught up in this idea that it was equal for everybody because it was not. Football's greatest individual award, the Heisman Memorial Trophy, is presented by Downtown Athletic Club President George Hall to Paul Hornung and honor all the greater considering his team's poor showing on the gridiron this year. The 1956 Heisman race, I think, stands alone as just being this crazy confluence of events that allowed Paul Horning, playing for a 2-8 and eight Notre Dame team, to win it. Jim Brown, African-American back at Syracuse, who still regarded as perhaps one of, if not the greatest running backs in the history of the NFL, did not win the Heisman Trophy, in large part because a lot of voters would not vote for an African-American player to win the Heisman. Ernie Davis follows in the footsteps of Jim Brown and becomes one of the key cogs in Syracuse winning the 1959 National Championship. At Dallas, the hardest fought of the year-end classics, Texas Longhorns against Syracuse, the national champions in the Cotton Bowl. Quarterback Sorette hands off to Gersh Fides, who lobs a mighty pass to Ernie Davis, who goes all the way for the Orange, 87 yards. The longest pass play in Cotton Bowl annals. Ernie Davis follows Jim Brown, doing the one thing Jim Brown couldn't do. Ernie Davis of Syracuse, the fleet Syracuse halfback, is voted the Heisman Trophy as the outstanding college football player of the year. 
The fact that he was the first African-American to win a Heisman Trophy, you know, it showed me and many, many others that, hey, it can be done. The 21-year-old whiz kid is as hard to stop as a 10-ton truck. Watch that number 44. And now, the test of Tuscaloosa, Alabama. The last state of the Deep South to resist integration of schools. It was, in effect, a single defiant man holding with strength to the weak mores of the past against the Constitution, the government, and the will of the people of the United States, both Negro and white. Integration in big-time college football in the South was very late. It is very appropriate that from this cradle of the Confederacy, this very heart of the great Anglo-Saxon Southland, that today we sound the drum for freedom. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. There was this contentious struggle taking place for the meaning of Alabama in the nation's consciousness. Was it about George Wallace and all of these awful things resisting the civil rights movement? Or was it Bear Bryant's dominant football program? Auburn took on fourth-ranked Alabama today with Alabama coach Bear Bryant seeking to become the winningest coach in college football history. He did. Dick Schapp reports. His name is Paul Bryant. But to millions of Americans who have never met him, he is simply the bear. Bryant is winning with what he would call his, you know, small, scrappy guys. And they were all white. And make no mistake, they were never going to be anything but all white. You're something special. And since you are something special, then I know that you can win if you put a little extra into it every day a little extra into it in the game. If you're a great African-American player in the South in the 60s, you couldn't play at a Southern school. So you had basically the option to go play in the Big Ten or maybe on the West Coast. So at the same time that Alabama was still segregated, one of Bryant's great friends was Duffy Daughtery, the uh, head coach at Michigan State. Duffy Daugherty is on the near side of the field, cheering his boys on. Duffy wasn't a man that saw color. He saw talent. Duffy was like a father to us. He was a father to me away from home in Hawaii. Jimmy Ray away from home in Fayetteville, North Carolina. He was a father to Bubba Smith from Beaumont, Texas. So Michigan State becomes a home for a lot of great African-American players during that time. It becomes one of the most integrated programs in the country. And of course, in 66, you had this classic showdown between Notre Dame and Michigan State. 80,000 fans fill Spartan Stadium East Lansing for the game of the century. Notre Dame and Michigan State couldn't have been more different. In 1966, Notre Dame had one African-American player, Alan Page. Michigan State had eight black defensive starters, an African-American quarterback, and two black team captains. Jimmy Ray, the quarterback, in his own end zone to Washington. But if you look at that Michigan State roster, a lot of those kids who came from the South could have ended up playing for the Crimson Tide. And Foley O'Brien retains possession. And 
And it looks like that's all Spartan Stadium. Even with the tie, Notre Dame and Michigan State both finished ahead of undefeated Alabama in the final rankings. Alabama had been number one the last two years in 1964 and 1965. Sports writers, fans, rankings were beginning to send a signal to Southern teams that you weren't going to be able to simply sit at the top and be considered the number one team in the country if you refused to play African-American players. That 1966 team was really a watershed for Bryant because the next four seasons, Alabama was not very good, and he knew he needed to change. Bear Bryant realizes that I cannot keep up. We're losing on African-American athletes. We're going to start losing games. They don't like that around here. So he invites Sam Bam Cunningham, plays for John McKay at USC, and the game's got to be in Alabama. Whether Bryant brought USC in to show everybody where the game had gone and where Alabama wasn't, whether he did that purposely or not, I'm not sure anybody knows. I think he knew that. I can't say that for a fact, but just knowing the man and how he did things, Coach Bryant did nothing by accident. The fact was that USC came to Legion Field in Birmingham in 1970 with a powerful, integrated lineup, among them, famously, a fullback named Sam Cunningham. When we went to Alabama, the airport was amazing. There were bands and politicians and cheerleaders. It was like something out of a movie, I guess, you know. And so they take us through the black neighborhood. They were probably fans of the Crimson Tide when they weren't playing a team that was integrated. They knew that that was going to be a special night somehow. assistant coach said at the time, Sam Bam Cunningham, who ran up and down the field that night against Alabama, did more for integration in 60 minutes than Martin Luther King did in 20 years. That comment isn't to celebrate Sam Cunningham. That comment is meant to denigrate Martin Luther King. The University of Alabama football team was integrated because it was forced to integrate through the blood, sweat, and toil of a long and bloody civil rights movement. Bear Bryant and other Southern football coaches uh, could have done a lot more, but they were comfortable, like a lot of people were comfortable with the way things were, and in many cases, they were resistant to any kind of racial change. Well, you know, Bear Bryant was a football coach, and his job was to win football games, and he knew that it was important to get black players at Alabama. It was important competitively, and he knew that. You know, when Bear Bryant said it was cool to open the floodgates, it was cool. This idea that these guys are football coaches and they want to win, well, sure they want to win. and They can win with an all-white team and spite people who are pushing for integration, so be it. A lot of their fans embrace them precisely for this reason. So I think it's important to call out these people for what they did and what they didn't do. Bear Bryant was tired of having his backside handed to him on a plate by teams that had African-American players. Players do the winning. I've never seen a coach win a game. 
I've lost a lot of games, but I've never won one. The players do the winning, and the assistant coaches do the work, and we have so many people that you don't realize that anytime you put a winning team out there, so many people contribute. Alabama started looking for the right guy to break the barrier, and this search led them to Ozark, Alabama, and to a guy named Wilbur Jackson. The integration of the Alabama program was an evolution. But if you ask me what was a bigger impact, the signing of Wilbur Jackson, 1969, or the 1970 Alabama Southern Cal game, it's Wilbur Jackson. A lot of people across the country saw Bryant and they saw Wallace, and they saw these two dominant figures and they thought they were the same thing. Well, they weren't. Segregation was an awful thing. It was not a Southern problem, it was an American problem. Reflected in college football. When we did finally correct it, that was the beginning of college football as we know it today. On the 100th anniversary of college football, ABC Sports presents... In today's game, the top-ranked Longhorns of Texas meet the unbeaten Razorbacks of Arkansas. In this 100th anniversary of football, one of the great football games of all time, and both of them I wish could be number one, but at the end, whichever is number one will deserve it, and the number two team will still go to a bowl and be a great team. Nixon decides that he is going to come to this game. The 1969 game it was the very last, effectively, national championship game played between two all-white teams. It crystallizes so well the way that our negotiation of race in this country was changing. And going to go to Randy Peschel, and Peschel catches the ball! What a toss! As the nation's number one team, Texas had to come from behind. Now he's coming up. Texas is the last national champ that was not integrated. And not only did it never happen again, it can never happen again. For a team to be behind 14 to nothing, and then not to lose its cool and to go on to win, that proves you deserve to be number one, and that's what you are. Nixon had strong opinions about football protesters and college protesters in general. By the late 1960s, there's a period of four or five years where there's essentially a black athletic revolt, including amongst black college athletes. The Community Relations Service in the Justice Department has examined 140 colleges and high schools in 17 states, studying various forms of campus unrest. It predicted more trouble this year it began really at San Jose State, where it was championed by Harry Edwards, a prominent sociologist who tried to organize black college athletes in protest and actually tried to organize a boycott of the 1968 Olympics. That visibility puts a lot of pressure on the person in that position. Some of them succeeded, others failed, but you have to recognize that being a black athlete was inherently political, whereas for someone else it would simply be a matter of playing and participating in a sport. 
1968 alone, there were over 100 instances of black college athletes protesting, most of them football players. But what happened in Wyoming was the largest of these. Neither the coach nor the blacks will back down, and neither side has contributed much to racial harmony in this trouble. But the issue is more than that of a standoff between a tough, hard-headed coach and some racial firebrands. The issue is that even in Marlboro country, you cannot hold back the racial revolution. The University of Wyoming in 1969 was a celebrated football team. It was ranked 12th in the nation, an unbeaten record, and black players were key to that success. And there were 14 black players. They were among the only black students on that campus. The Black 14, they call them. They have risked their college education and possible professional football careers to express their feelings about the racism of the Mormon church. The Mormons believe blacks are cursed with the mark of Cain and so won't accept us as full members. The Black 14 came to Coach Lloyd Eden before the BYU game and asked if they could wear black armbands at the game to protest against the Mormon church's denial of ordination for African-Americans. We felt, let's go talk to the coach and see if this is the right approach or is there something more impactful that we can do to let Brigham Young know that that's not going to be tolerated. It's not acceptable. And so out of respect, we wanted to go talk to Coach, and so we went over there thinking that was going to be a robust meeting, and all hell broke loose. <laughs> Instead of giving us the courtesy of the conference room, our meeting room, he took us out into the stands. Coach Eaton leaned on the railing, and he said, I can save you gentlemen a lot of time. Uh, you're finished. You're all through. In January, you can start looking for somewhere else to go to school. And maybe you ought to consider the Gramlins and Morgan States because they'll tolerate that behavior there, but I'm not going to tolerate it here. He felt as though we defied him. He wasn't interested in uh, what we were standing up for, what we believed in as black men. Eaton, a strict disciplinarian, fired the players because they violated two of his coaching rules. One, forbidding football players from taking part in student demonstrations. The other, barring the formation of factions or groups within the team. Rolling? We do not set up rules just for the sake of a rule. There's a reason behind every rule that we have in our football team. So if there's any thought given to it at all, they should have known that the rules would be followed because the rule is not for just one group, it's for the entire team. Part of that, I'm sure, had to do with coaches at that time had a my way or the highway attitude about pretty much everything. Pretty easy to say it probably had something to do with race as well. You don't believe then uh, this was a racist issue, that if some white fellows wanted to demonstrate about something, they'd get the same treatment, would they? Yes, sir, they would. They were told on uh, Tuesday night prior to the moratorium uh, on the Vietnam War, fellows, don't get mixed up in it. And the 45 uh, white students we had did not see fit to, to march in the uh, Vietnam War, uh, moratorium. So what is, again, good for one is good for the other, sir. An appropriate word to describe his behavior and how we felt about it is disappointment. There wasn't rage. There might have been outrage at some of the things that he said, but no rage, no anger. It was, it was uh, deflating. 
Lloyd Eaton embodied that frustration that white Wyoming residents felt at the national level towards what was happening in their country. So he was overwhelmingly embraced. How do you feel about this demonstration going here and about this controversy around Coach Eaton? Well, I, th I don't think that uh, uh, it's as big a race issue as they're trying to make it out to be. And uh, I'm not supporting this. I don't see any black students marching with this demonstration. Uh, how do you account for that? Maybe they don't know what's going on. Maybe they don't know what's here. <laughs> I don't know, they, it seems they are very ill-informed about things, and probably this is just another one of the things that they don't know about. Thank you. Thank you. When San Jose State came to play two weeks later, they were wearing black armbands in support of the Black 14. We were 4-0 and when this happened. They beat San Jose State, then they lost the next four games. So they ended up 6-4, and no bowl game, dropped out of the top 20 and stayed out. A team that had been nationally ranked, that had garnered significant national attention, went straight into the dumps in the next few years, and Lloyd Eaton was fired. So it substantially hurt the football team, of course, but it hurt that university's national reputation as well. Well, now it's homecoming day, and you've worked a long time to uh, be inside there playing, and now you're out here walking. How do you feel about that? Well, I think it's a great disappointment. Not so much that I'm out here walking, but the reasons as to why I'm out here walking. This is something that is going to be happening throughout the rest of this century. It's interesting that you could then draw a parallel from Wyoming, those 14, to the University of Missouri in 2015. A group of black Missouri football players announced Saturday that they won't play or participate in football activities until University President Tim Wolf resigns. The players, part of a group called Missouri's Legion of Black Collegians, is angered over Wolf's handling of recent events of racism on campus. Behind me, a tent city, 25 tents strong, showing solidarity for the students behind this movement. And one of those students is the student body president of this school, Peyton Head, a senior who says that twice he was confronted with blatant racism on this campus when individuals stopped him and screamed the N-word at him. They're protesting the treatment of black students, the existence of racism on the Missouri campus, and they're actually supported by the coach. Pinkle tweeted this photo of he and the players earlier today with the caption, the Mizzou family stands as one. We are united, we are behind our players. You know, at the, at the time, Saturday, Sunday, it's, it's not about football. It has to do with football. It's about my, my players need my support, and I'm going to support them. When Wyoming happened in 69, first of all, those 14 players had no leverage, whereas Missouri players have all the leverage. And when you start talking about canceling games, and you can do it, because if you don't play, there's no game. Missouri in 2015 was different from what happened in Laramie, Wyoming, because if Missouri hadn't played that game, they stood to lose $1 million. I'm not allowed to comment on much, so like I said, we're just going to all stay together as a team, and we all made this decision as a team to, you know, not talk to the media. So you're not going to hear much from the players. So, I mean, this is kind of the outlet for me. 
As we know, the national spotlight comes when sports are involved. That's right. And then when a football team says, we're not playing Brigham Young. There's money in this. There's money involved, there's Tony. Money. And you Million dollar payout if they don't play. And they tipped it. I do They tipped that. it without yeah. question. We just got word that the university president, Wolf, has resigned. Use my resignation to heal and start talking again, to make the changes necessary. And let's focus on changing what we can change today and in the future. But I think to draw that arc between 69 and Wyoming all the way to 2015, I think that that arc traces the arc of integration in college football in the power, the numbers, and the economics that young black athletes kind of control, except they just don't know it. The team leader, the field general, the quarterback, is most often white. Is there a good reason for that, or is this just another milestone on the road that needs passing? The quarterback position, I think, is still the most unique position in sports. And as it evolved, it was sort of Mr. American white male. It holds a special mythology in the hearts of a lot of white men. There's no other way to say it, but black quarterbacks were treated unfairly as the game of college football grew. Even after we started integration, there's no black middle linebackers, there's no black centers, there's no black quarterbacks, no black safeties. Why? Black guys ain't smart enough. You're not disciplined enough to play those positions. Those are the leadership positions. That was the myth. That was the myth. Once given the opportunity, black quarterbacks quickly proved that they could lead a team. In 1960, Sandy Stevens at the University of Minnesota became the first African-American quarterback to win a national championship. Stevens on the bootleg goes 26 yards to the Badger 39, legging it all along and running hard. In the early days, black quarterbacks were only going to be given the opportunity to lead teams with the support of progressive coaches. Coaches who were willing to endure pushback from some fans and boosters. Michigan State coach Duffy Darty. You know, he's got 20 African-American players, and he's got Jimmy Ray as an African-American quarterback. Jimmy Ray, a junior quarterback, only 5 feet, 10 inches tall, 170 pounds. There's not one singular thing that you can point to that says, hey, college football is integrated. But what Duffy Darty did with that 1966 team, it's a tremendous part of the evolution of race in college football. In the early 70s, black quarterbacks, the way they were viewed, they had to change positions. They came to a college, they wanted them to play defensive back, running back, play receiver, but you're not gonna play quarterback. Condridge Holloway, my hero at Tennessee, the artful Dodger, always told me that Coach Bryant said, I'd love to have you here, but at that time, I don't think we're ready for you as a quarterback. I'll take you as any other position. He was very appreciative of Coach Bryant being honest with him. Most of the great black athletes in the Deep South or the Southeast are staying home, taking the grants and aid here to play in Southeastern Conference schools. Did you ever have any misgivings or doubts about coming into one of the last of the Lily White Leagues? Uh, now that I look back on it, Jim, no, I didn't. I, I didn't come here as a pioneer for anything as far as being black. Connors Holloway is the most inspiring figure to wear the orange uniform. And it expands even beyond that. When you talk to other athletes at other universities in the Southeastern Conference, it wasn't just that Connors played quarterback. It was the way that he played. It was the way that he conducted himself to this day. Connors Holloway of Huntsville, Alabama, quarterback for Tennessee. Throwing long, the man is there. 
Beautiful to the Alabama 30. It was tough to break through that paradigm of stereotype and lies. In 1988, 20% of the Division I quarterbacks were black. And even in the late 80s, it was still a story about black quarterbacks. Witness the Fiesta Bowl. The emergence of the black quarterback is certainly not a myth. It is happening, and it is a testament of the triumph of ability and determination over prejudice. The 1989 Fiesta Bowl saw for the first time two black quarterbacks leading their teams in a national championship game. Major Harris at West Virginia and Tony Rice at Notre Dame. It was a milestone in the story of the black quarterback. It's Notre Dame number one, West Virginia number three, only the eighth time in the last 50 years. Two unbeaten, untied teams have met in a bowl game to decide the national championship. The myth of the black quarterback not being competent is shattered when you see them win national championships, when you see them lead teams. Major Harris, a sophomore. We can't play this position if you just give us a shot. I think about a guy like Tony Rice at the University of Notre Dame. This is a guy who could have played any position he wanted to play for the most part. But the University of Notre Dame said, you're going to be our quarterback. He's on the cover of Sports Illustrated three times in one season, and he's the guy under center for the longest winning streak in the history of Notre Dame football. He breaks away from Parker, 45-50, and Rice is all the way forward and still on his feet and tripped up at the 32-yard line. Well, what does he do? He's the last guy to win a national championship for the University of Notre Dame. The most valuable player in today's game is Tony Rice. Join me in the signal honor of awarding the 1989 Heisman Memorial Trophy to Andre Ware of the University of Houston. Andre Ware was the first black quarterback to win the Heisman Trophy. He won it in an offense that threw the ball in a way that colleges had never seen before. Andre Ware rewrote the collegiate record books this year. He threw for more than 4,000 yards. In all, he set 17 individual passing records. Andre Ware was sort of a revelation, and to see a black quarterback operate like that and at a high level in 1989, it was revolutionary. After Michael Vick came along, asked Virginia Tech what happened there and how that helped them grow the university. And all of a sudden, now they're a national power. Now they're Michael Vick. Here's a snap, flag dog, we're offside on a blitz. Vick rolls to his left, rolling to his right now. Runs with the football, cuts it back to the 40, to the 50-yard line, to the 45. Vick to the 40, Vick to the 30, Vick to the 20, and he is shoved out of bounds at the 12. When you see Vince Young on the college level, taking Texas to the national championship. That's one of those success stories. You step in a game with confidence, like, okay, they telling me I can't play this position? Okay, let me show you. And I used to have that so much growing up and playing on the pro level and the college level. It doesn't matter what color of your skin you are, it's just how much you prepare yourself to play the game of football and how much passion you have for the game. You can force him out of the pocket, but you're not going to beat him. Invincible. The winner is Lamar Jackson of University of Louisville. Lamar Jackson at 19 years old, being the youngest Heisman Trophy winner ever. That breaks down the barriers that were there before. 
it's remarkable that that has happened with quarterbacks, and yet somehow it has not happened with head coaches. It is an enigma in major college football. Black linemen, black backs, black receivers. But on the sidelines, without exception, the head coach is white. When I went to Alabama, there were no black assistant coaches. Zero. The first one that I ever saw in the Southeastern Conference was John Mitchell, my teammate, when Coach Brown hired him to be assistant coach. To believe now we got a black assistant coach, that was a big deal. A great number of black coaches out there, football coaches out there that deserve an opportunity. If you're a good coach and good person and you can motivate and educate players, then you deserve that opportunity. You had to have a coach who was willing to take on all that came with hiring an African-American coach. The external forces of people saying he shouldn't be there, he's not good enough to be there, and some of the hate that surrounds it, but then, two, believing that he can actually do the job. And what I appreciated about coaches that took that chance, like a Woody Hayes who took that chance on Rudy Hubbard, is I saw him play, I helped to bring him up, you know, through my system so he knows how I do things, and I feel confident that I know this man. Seeing African-American assistant coaches on the sideline was an important first step to seeing our first African-American head coach. Willie Jeffries was the first African-American to coach at a Division I-A school at Wichita State. He showed everybody that he could do it on that level. Even after that barrier was broken, African-American head coaches still continued to face discrimination. They were often not afforded the same opportunity to build a successful program that white coaches were afforded. In other words, they weren't given the same opportunity to fail. It took until 2004 for the SEC to have one African-American head coach, Sylvester Croom at Mississippi State. I am the first African-American coach in the SEC, but there ain't but one color that matters here and that color's maroon. To think that the first black coach in the Southeastern Conference is at Mississippi State University, that's a bit of a miracle. You know, not me, but the fact that it happened there. Knowing what I know about, about the history of racial relationships in, in, in the South, I'm still amazed at that. Sylvester Croom was the perfect person to be the first black head football coach in the SEC. He played in the conference. He played for Bear Bryant. Remember, Alabama interviewed him for the head coaching job, and he didn't get the job. I think the only reason he didn't get the job is because he's black. They did not want to hire at that time a black head coach. And that's not to say it was just Alabama. There were a lot of schools in the SEC that you could say that about. Hard, fight, teamwork, sacrifice. That's what we're going to make Mississippi State. That's what's going to take us to the national championship. It's going to come. We just got to keep doing what we're doing and keep believing. One of the neatest parts of Sylvester Croom's tenure there was when he took Mississippi State to the Liberty Bowl in Memphis. 25 years ago today, you stood on this field with Bear Bryant and as, a, as an assistant coach at Alabama, won his final game as a coach. What significance does that mean for you today to stand here and win? It's real special. Paul Bear Bryant goes out a winner in his final game. 25 years to the date that he was on the sideline in that same venue with Bear Bryant's last game. And there he is, the first blackhead football coach in the SEC, leading Mississippi State to a bowl win there, being there in Memphis that night, and seeing that was a really cool experience. I think we're on our way. I think now administrators just want guys that 
will win and will lead their programs properly. It used to be you got one shot and that was over. Tyrone Willingham coached at Stanford, Notre Dame, got fired at Notre Dame, got the Washington job. Kevin Sumlin just got fired at Texas A&M immediately back in play in Arizona. That's heartening because it used to be one shot and that was it. If you didn't go, off you went, you'll be a career assistant from here on out. So I think we're seeing progress in that, but we're not seeing it in terms of numbers. The one thing we haven't done with coaches is that African-American coaches haven't necessarily gotten the traditional power jobs. Certainly, Tyrone Willingham getting the Notre Dame job is a notable exception to this, and there are some other exceptions as well. But it hasn't become the norm. I think that's the next hurdle. A person asked me once, aren't you proud to be the first black coach in the SEC, and don't you think about how great that is? I said, no, not really. I just want to see the time when the black quarterback is a quarterback. Lofts it downfield for Morris, who's got it for a touchdown! I want to see the time when a black coach is just another coach. Sylvester Crew with the win. This is what has to happen now. When we see wrong, we have to speak up. Don't just be silent. Your silence allows it to grow and continue. We gotta call it out wherever we see it.